morning, everyone. Welcome to Creekside Church. We're glad to be here this morning with you, to have you here, and uh, just to worship the Lord together. I want to start off with a couple of scripture verses that, that really go with this song we're going to sing about the greatness of our God. So one of them is from 2 Samuel, How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you. And the psalmist says, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. So if you'd stand and sing with us, please, as we sing about how great our God is. I have a couple of things I want to remind you of or call to your attention. First of all, immediately after the service, there's going to be a get-to-know-us lunch. And so if you're relatively new to the Creekside family, I certainly want to invite you to come. There's no cost. And a couple of our elders will be there. Uh, there'll be some free food and then a chance to share around the tables and to hear some information about what Creekside Church believes, what our doctrinal statement is, and uh, the things that we're involved in, ministries and activities. Just a good chance to get to know us on a personal basis and for us to get to know you. So that's right after the service beginning immediately at 12 o'clock because some of the folks that are running that are going to try to make it to the funeral. I would love to have a lot of chance to talk to you all after the service, but unfortunately because of Dwayne McFadden's funeral, I'll be leaving as soon as I can after the service so that I can make it because I'm going to be sharing God's word with the folks there. I appreciate your prayers for them and for me as we go about that. I want to remind you that the food pantry for the Urbandale Food Pantry collection is today, last day. So Bob, when are you going to pick up stuff? Uh, you want to take it immediately after the service. So if you still have something you want to give, you can give him a cash donation or later you can talk to Bob. Uh, Bob, raise your hand, wave your hand so people know. Some people don't know who Bob is. He just, I'm on his bad list now because I made him wave and called, called attention to himself. So. Uh, also, last thing, Awana. Wednesday nights, God is blessing us completely, so we need your help, uh, just honestly, we need your help. So any age group you can help out with, it would be greatly appreciated. Talk to Mary Klein or talk to Mark Klein. If you don't know who those people are, then call the church office and we'll give you their numbers and you can get a hold of them, okay? Now, I need to pray uh, because uh, we're just a little bit discombobulated here this morning, so let me pray. Father. Uh, by your grace and by your power, I thank you for your word and ask that as we open up your word that your spirit would speak to us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, Timothy, would you grab my iPad there in front of you? Yeah, you might want to know what I'm going to say. <laughs> Don't worry, there's a plan B. Uh, okay. Yes, I will. I will try to work it out. Okay, how many of you know what a bonsai tree is? Anybody know what a bonsai tree is? Okay, I want to show you a picture of a bonsai tree. But do you know how they make bonsai trees or how they get these trees, these dwarf trees? They're miniature replicas of the full-blown deal. So what they do is, or what you can do, is you take a, a tree that's just a, a nurturing seedling and you trim its roots. You cut its roots off before you plant it and pot it in the soil. 
And then as the tree grows, you, there's continually pinching off of the branches and clipping of the branches to keep it in that miniature state in which you find it. And so the result is that you have this beautiful looking ornamental tree that's interesting and beautiful to look at, but it is of really no other value. It never matures to the point that it produces fruit so that it can reproduce itself. It never grows up so that it produces fruit so that other people can appreciate and enjoy the fruit. Like some of you have been going to apple orchards and things like that and you've enjoyed the fruit. No, not with a, not with a bonsai tree. You, you can't do it. This morning what I'd like to suggest to you is that there are many people who profess faith in Jesus Christ who are a lot like bonsai trees. And they're called bonsai believers. Well, that's not, I mean, that's my term, okay? But they're bonsai believers. Their, their spiritual roots have been trimmed back so that their growth has been stunted and they're not able to produce fruit or grow to full maturity. The penetrating sun of the world, the S-U-N of the world, the lure of all kinds of temptations to pursue this and pursue that in hopes of finding satisfaction and fulfillment, the possible persecution by others, others who would make fun of you if you really were identified as a true, genuine, fanatical follower of Jesus, the lure of riches, whatever it might be, keep them from growing to full maturity so that they're unable or they're unwilling to produce fruit. They aren't able to produce fruit and they're not able to provide any size. There's no spiritual growth. There's no real fruit. There's no reproduction in, into the lives of other people that would give evidence that they truly are a child of God. And our churches are full of them. You see... It's hard for me to stay right here, okay? It, when, you, when, when, a, when a tree is a dwarf, it's sort of a novelty. But when a person professes to be a believer in Jesus Christ and they're spiritually immature, it's a tragedy. And it's this particular tragedy that the writer of Hebrews was seeking to address in Hebrews chapter 5 beginning with verse 11 and on through chapter 6 verse 8 and in this section he, he speaks to a group of people who are professing believers some of them are possessing true faith in Jesus Christ but his concern over the implications of their spiritual immaturity their spiritual dwarfism if you will let him to speak to them and call them to mature, to press on towards maturity and therefore prove that they were truly in the faith and prevent them from a terrible calamity. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to read the text and we're going to see this message that was then given that is to be repeated and very much to be heeded even today. And in this text, as you see on the screen, the author employs two tactics to inspire professing believers 
towards spiritual maturity to prove the reality of our faith and to prevent spiritual calamity. I'm going to read the text beginning with verse 11 of chapter 5. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of their practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary principles, elementary teachings, I'm sorry, about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, instructions about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in this case, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often which falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. It's a complicated, maybe, text, but not really falls out into these two tactics. And the first tactic that the writer employs to spur these professing believers on to maturity is a condemnation of spiritual immaturity. And he does so in very simply two parts. First, the condemnation is expressed. And then later we'll see how he explains what this condemnation is. So he expresses it in verse 11. He says, concerning him, whom he has just referred to in verse 10. This is the Christ, who is a priest, a high priest, in the order of Melchizedek. This is the third major warning in the book of Hebrews to these Christians professing and some who are actually possessing faith in Christ. And he does so to who they seem to be stunted. They were just kind of stagnated in their growth. And he has much to say to them about Christ, who is the high priest and the order of the Melchizedek, but he can't do it because they have become dull of hearing, he says. You, you have become dull. And why would they become dull? I think they became dull, and it doesn't say in the text, but par- partly because of their maybe indifferent exposure, association with the, the Word of God. They've heard the Word of God, but they're indifferent to it. Or perhaps, as we'll see a little bit later, they had heard the Word of God, they just weren't practicing it. And so they had become dull, which is very easy to do. We come to church, we hear the Word, we hear this stuff, and we just go on our merry way about it as if it has no bearing in our lives. I don't know about you, but some of you are becoming dull of hearing. Campaign ads 
on the radio and on the new, in the news and on the TV. Some of you are becoming dull of hearing. You need to vote. Well, these people had become dull of hearing the Word of God. So that's the condemnation which is expressed. And then he goes on to explain it in verses 12 through 14. And the author uses what I have labeled the insult to incite method of condemnation. It's kind of an old school coaching tactic where you insult the person to incite motivation to action, to see them improve. When my father was a senior co-captain of his college football team at Iowa State Teachers College, at now the University of Northern Iowa, his coach used this method with my father when he said to him, Smitty, the freshmen are calling you Alice. Now, for some of you, that may not mean anything, but I'll explain it to you if you want to later. But they were insulting my dad. He was insulting my dad to incite my dad to run over a few people to prove that he was not who the freshmen were saying that he was, which I doubt the freshmen were saying that he was that. Or It's an incite to motivate. It's an insult to, to motivate their, uh, their motivation. So he's insulting them. He says, by the time, in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to have been teachers, it indicates that sufficient time had transpired for them to mature fully to the point in fruitfulness that they would be teachers, not necessarily formal doctrinal teachers, but that they had matured to a level that they were able to explain the Word of God to people, to provide godly counsel and godly encouragement, to come alongside people and to shore them up in their faith. But no, they couldn't do it. They couldn't edify others as followers. Of growing, they had regressed to infancy. They had gone from, not from, they weren't teachers of the law, they were thumbsuckers, if you will. They, they were babies carrying their blankets around for security. It's kind of a repulsive thing, but it was an insult to incite them to maturity. They had, they had need for someone, again, to teach them the elementary principles, if you will, the, the most derogatory yet true to the text application or explanation is they needed to learn their ABCs again. They needed to go back and learn their ABCs as if they had had amnesia. And so he says no. And of the word of God, the oracles of God in the text that's described here, the principles of the oracles of God, has to do with the Old Testament teachings, particularly those regarding the person and work of Jesus that were necessary for their salvation. They had need for someone to teach them that again. It's an insult. You have come to need milk and not solid food in verse 12. So it equates, he's equating their spiritual development to that of physical development. They had become spiritually what an infant is physically. Two principles, I think, that are worth grasping as I was doing my study that came out in the reading that I did. First of all, look, spiritual maturity is an expectation. It's expected that those who profess faith in Christ grow and mature in their faith. And time is not necessarily what accomplishes it. It isn't necessarily how long you have professed faith in Christ. It is, are we a Christian and we should be growing? And time, you know, the spiritual growth doesn't necessarily happen with time. 
you know? That's the way, that's the way he said it. It isn't automatic. It doesn't just happen because, well, I, I walked forward down the aisle one time when I was 13 years old, and now I'm still, now I'm a grumpy old guy instead of being a young grumpy old person, or grumpy person. No, it's expected that we would grow up in Jesus. And he further develops this metaphor and explanation in verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. If all we know are the elementary principles of our salvation, that's the person who's a spiritual babe. that, That person we would not be accustomed to eating solid food. The meat, the word of righteousness that he's speaking of here particularly is related to verse 10 about Christ as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's the deep truths that they weren't able to digest because they were not maturing in their faith. Mark, if your grandson Jarrett was given a steak, he wouldn't be able to eat it. If little Emily Hirons was given a steak... Or, you know, no, it's not going to happen because they're not accustomed to it. They're not able to do it. Righteousness here, the word of righteousness. Righteousness refers to the righteousness that is possessed by those who, by faith, trust in Christ and his death as the payment for their sins. That's righteousness possessed, but it also is righteousness practiced. It's righteousness possessed and righteousness practiced which necessarily accompanies righteousness possessed. If we come to faith in Christ and the righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, the righteousness of God in us through faith in Christ. If that's true, there will necessarily be righteousness practiced in our life. The two cannot be separated. Conversely, righteousness possessed results in righteousness practice, which is a prerequisite for things. If we are not receiving it, which is in the text, then it's because we've rejected the righteousness of God and therefore and or we're neglecting the practice of righteousness. So it's possible to receive the righteousness of God and not practice it, but not for very long. So you have two things. These are the babes in Christ. They have either, they're either immature and not maturing because they have rejected the righteousness of God and or they are neglecting the practice of righteousness. So it's possible, to, you know, and I, I'm not the one who calls the shots. I don't know everybody's heart. I don't know even my own heart. It's deceitful above all things. But it's possible to be in the church and actually possess righteousness and yet kind of be stagnated for a while what Paul, what, no, I shouldn't say Paul, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is, because I don't know if it was Paul, okay, and I'm not saying it was him, but what he's saying is you can't stay there very long. You have righteousness possessed, it will result in righteousness practiced. That's what he says. And righteousness possessed and righteousness practiced is a prerequisite for spiritual maturity. That's verse 14. He says, but solid food is for the mature who, because of the practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You see, the mature are ready for the meat. Meat here, particularly, that Christ is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
Because they possess righteousness, they practice righteousness. They are people who love their brothers and sisters in Christ. They are people who pray for their enemies. They are people who love others. People who forgive others. People who serve others. People who surrender their lives to the Lordship of Christ. These people have possessed and they practice righteousness and therefore they, when they exercise, which is interesting, their, their, their spiritual sensitivities and senses are trained. The word trained there is the word from which we get our English word gymnasium. They are exercising. And because they are exercising, they are mature. And because they are mature, they are not only enabled by God to discern good and evil, they are entitled to get more. John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and get the last phrase, and disclose myself to him. Obedience to the word opens us up to further understanding of who Jesus is. And so there is a, a formula, if you will, for maturity. But I, I think if I think about an, an example of how this is played out, I'm not a concert pianist. I, I know a guy who, who is a concert pianist and Sam Rotman, he went to the Juilliard School of Music and graduated and he, he's played all over the world. A concert pianist practices to the point that they are able to discern the smallest error in their play and anybody else's play. Even though it's unnoticed by other people, they can discern it. And because they can discern it, they're enabled to, to learn more and more complicated and more difficult pieces and practice them. They know their training enables them to discern good and evil piano playing, if you will, and enables them and entitles them to learn more difficult pieces. And so here's the formula for spiritual maturity. We listen to the truth. That's verse 11. We're not dull, but we're attentive. Okay? We listen to it attentively. And then in verses 12 and 13, we know the truth completely. And then in verse 14, we practice the truth consistently. And that equals maturity. Are we here this morning? And maybe we're stuck in spiritual immaturity. Only God knows our heart. But if we're stuck, it's either because we don't possess righteousness or we possess righteousness, but we're not practicing righteousness. So in the former case, we need to trust Christ, repent and trust Christ, so that we can possess the righteousness of God. In the latter case, we need to repent and obey Christ. Confess our sins of not following him. And, and you know, I'd say for most, for, for a lot of people, it's like it, I may not be completely immature in everything, but there's some areas in which I just haven't surrendered to the Lord. I just haven't waved the right flag, white flag and said, okay, Lord, you can have this. I'm kind of holding out on God. Well, that's not full surrender. You see, and it's surrender not out of duty, but out of devotion because of what Christ has done for me. 
The love of Christ controls us. You understand that. So there's this condemnation of our spiritual maturity. Then the writer moves on to his invitation to move us to spiritual maturity. Spiritual infancy is not the goal here. It's not the end game. And so he moves us on in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Interestingly enough, the writer doesn't follow his condemnation with accommodation. He's just condemned the professing believers, some who actually possess faith in Christ, for their immaturity. Now, he mentions briefly what those elementary principles are, but he doesn't go back and start over again with their ABCs and explain it to them. I'm going to explain what the ABCs are to us, but that's not his, his point. His point is to call them to maturity. It's like, hey, we're, you're not stuck in the weeds here. We're going out. We're, we're moving on. He doesn't warm up the formula and give them the bottle. He starts serving them up meat and potatoes and says, let's get with the game. If you're really there, because if you're not, then you need to get in the game. And when you get in the game, then you can grow and mature and eat this stuff, and then we can move on. Because if you don't get in the game, or if you're in the game and you're not playing the game, then you're in danger. And so we're, we're warned about the perils of complacency. And the writer's invitation has two parts. Here's the rallying cry to move forward in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, verse 1, Leaving the elementary, ties us right back in to verse 14 of chapter 5, actually verses 11 through 14. Leaving the elementary principles, teachings, I'm sorry, about the Christ, which defines the elementary principles as he's talked about before, particularly those in the Old Testament. He's writing to these Hebrew people, these Jewish people, and he says, it's, it's time to grow up. Press on to maturity. Leaving means move on from. Leave it. Move on from it. Not, not abandon. It, it's complementary to pressing on. The elementary teachings about Christ are the, with regard to salvation. These elementary teachings are, as Hughes puts it, stepping stones, not stopping places. Okay. And we're going to list them, these elementary principles. We're called to move beyond the ABCs. When I took calculus in college... I, I wasn't spending a lot of time on addition and subtraction. But I couldn't forget addition and subtraction to do the complicated derivatives of calculus. So you move on from it. You, you, you have it grounded, but you move on from it. That's what he calls them to. The foundation, the catechism that all these Jewish people had to go through in order to embrace salvation through faith in Christ consisted, uh, and, and then convert to Christianity, consisted of six basic teachings, and I think they're lumped together in, in twos, okay? First of all, we read about repentance. Repentance. Old Testament talks about repentance. These are Old Testament that are fully embraced in the new, in the person of Christ. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength then he says to them, but you were unwilling. Okay? You were unwilling. The day of distractions. <laughs> but you were unwilling. So somebody needs to hear this. That's all I got to say. And I know I need to hear it. 
In repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were unwilling. Repentance in the Old Testament leads us to repentance in the New Testament. The repentance in the New Testament was spoken about by Jesus. It was spoken about by John the Baptist. It was spoken about by Paul. In these different passages, I'll just give you the passage. You can look them up later. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says that we should repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul says, repentance, they preach the message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In the book of Hebrews, repentance and faith are linked to repentance and faith in God, and faith in God is linked with faith in Jesus Christ. You see it in chapter 3, verse 1, which Bob preached on. He says, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. He's the one that we turn to. And repentance from dead works indicates that, hey, there is a a regeneration that took place, a new life that takes place. Later, when we get to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, we're going to read that it is that he, he says, it's not though the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling cleanses you for a, a, a time, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself up without blemish, cleanses your heart from, get this, dead works. And dead works are the sins that lead us to death. Any sin. The wage of sin is what? Death. Spiritual separation from God. So he's talking about repentance, and then he links it, if you will, in the text. Look at the text. And faith towards God. Faith towards God. Foundational Old Testament principle, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was what? Counted to him as righteousness. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The just shall live by faith. Galatians 3, 17. The just shall live by faith. It's faith. It's repentance and faith. The doctrine of salvation. For those theologically astute people, the, the soteriology. Okay? The doctrine of salvation was essential. And they had it and grasped it in the person and work of Jesus. And you're saved not by your good works, but you're saved from your dead works. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13, what are the dead works? The offering of the, the bulls and the goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling cleanses for a time. That's the dead works. Now you have the de- saved from it. How? Through the blood of Jesus. Next duo of doctrine comes in verse Two, in instructions about washings, some say baptisms, it's probably a not accurate indication, although I believe that, as you'll see, that the baptism of the Spirit, I think, is in view here, okay? Washings and the laying on of hands. Old Testament about washings emphasize, hey, they had to be cleansed all the time. It was continually washing this, washing that. They had basins set up to ritually wash themselves, to cleanse themselves because they were constantly impure. And the laying on of hands spoke of the commissioning or the transfer. It's a powerful foundation. See, the Jewish people have such a rich foundation for the, these images that are fulfilled and fully realized and the significance of which is fully meaningful in the person and the work of Jesus. And they were missing it. And so 
the, the many temporary physical washings is replaced by the one permanent spiritual washing, the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit in, spoken of in Titus 3.5. The baptism of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit you are all baptized into one body. When a person puts their faith or the trust in Jesus, they are cleansed completely, fully, for sure, for all time. It's only pictured by these constant washings in the Old Testament. And this washing means that the baptism of the Spirit is there so there is this baptism washing and then the laying on of hands has to do also with the spirit's work because the laying on of hands was the commissioning the impartation of the spirit of god but also the impartation of the gifts of the spirit that they would use in the service of the king and so they were cleansed by the washing and the commissioning of empowering god's people the doctrine of the holy spirit you got the doctrine of salvation you got the doctrine of the holy spirit and then what do we have in the next verse the next word, phrase he says in, in verse 2, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, the doctrine of end times. The resurrection. They spoke of resurrection in the Old Testament. Resurrection was, was part of what they had been taught. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Even Job, you know, I, I, I don't, I'll see him. And so they have the doctrine of the resurrection. In the Old Testament, the significance is fully grasped in the person of Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Then the eternal judgment. Who is the judge? God is a lawgiver and judge. But in the New Testament, in John chapter 5, verses 22 to 27, Jesus is the judge. Son of man is the judge. You see Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. He is the resurrection. He is the judge. The doctrine of End times. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10. He's the judge. See, their heritage in Judaism provided the bedrock from which the foundational truths of the faith were cut. And yet they weren't embracing them. They weren't enjoying them. They had decided advantage of embracing these truths Despite the privileges, there was no spiritual growth. There was stagnation. That's chapter 5, verse 12. So it seems like, I think, the Hebrew writer of Hebrews was saying, look, you have all these advantages, these privileges, but you're, you're not making the Christian connection. You're not making the connection in the Old Testament to that in the New Testament of the personal work of Jesus, but you think that you are still okay. You're not okay unless you make the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament and the person and the work of Jesus. But it's more comfortable that way because we can hide among our, our Judaistic friends, we can hide among the, the Nero and the persecution, and we can just kind of blend in with the crowd and be comfortable as quote-unquote followers of Jesus, even though we're not really followers of Jesus. We're just holding to the Old Testament, holding to these things. Such infancy calls into question their authenticity. I think is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So the writer calls him to maturity. Then you can prove you really are one of God's kids. People at Creekside Church, there's an expectation of maturity for those who are authentically related to Jesus Christ. And if there is no projection or prospect or no progress in maturity then it leaves every question as to whether we are really truly in the family 
Now, I'm not the one making that call, but this is 1 John as well. He who has my he who has, uh, Jesus, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. 1 John, if we say that we come to know him and do not keep his commandments, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. And so he calls them. And then he says, if God permits, which is interesting. He says, he says I'm not prophetic. If God permits, we, the, the teachers, and you, the listeners, will progress towards maturity and prove the authenticity of your relationship with Jesus Christ. If God permits. And it isn't, it's only if God permits. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. God enables the teachers God enables the hearers. God enables and empowers the maturity. But only when we mature are we getting food or able to have food that leads us further on to maturity. And so then we're given the rationale in verses 4 through 8 for moving on. And the writer's concern is for the souls of all who profess Christ. Then and now. Those who profess Christ. And I've tried to make that very clear. I have to use your words carefully here. Those who profess Christ, because all who profess Christ do not possess Christ. And all who profess Christ are not possessed by Christ. But some who profess, their lives don't manifest the reality. And the lack of maturity caused him and should cause us to question the authenticity. And so he warns them and calls them and he calls those of us in this body and everywhere to Spur us on to maturity to prove the reality so that we don't suffer this great calamity that's coming that he describes of falling away and never being able to repent. That's verse 8. And so how does he do that? He's talking to bonsai believers. Okay. Shallow roots. No fruit. Dwarfs. Not going anywhere. Doesn't seem like it. And so he wants us to understand that and why would I say that why there's a big in case you don't know this in this passage of Hebrews there's a big discussion as to whether he's talking to true believers or professing believers I hope you get that I'm saying that I believe he's talking to professing believers not real believers because I read in Romans chapter 8 verses 38 and 39 I read in John chapter 10 verses 27 through 30 and I read in 1st John chapter 5 verses 11 through 13 that there is security, eternal security for those who are truly trusting in Christ. The people he's talking to don't have eternal security. They can fall away. So it, in my opinion, must be a professing but not possessing believers. There's another reason, and that reason is that it would be totally inconsistent with the, the, the rest of, of all of Scripture. That's the reason I just gave you, the reason I'm going to exposit for you why I think that it's talking to professing believers is that none of these statements that are made can be linked exclusively or should be made of those who are truly believers. Let's look at them. He says this, they have once been enlightened, verse 2, oh, I'm sorry, verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, intellectual perception, okay, without Embracing the truth, intellectual perception of the truth. They had been given the light of the gospel. They'd given the knowledge of Jesus. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. 
John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Did you see the word? Enlightens every man. Is every man, woman, and child a believer? No. He enlightens every man, this person Jesus. He wasn't, or that, that's John did. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. There was the true light, that's Jesus, who coming into the world enlightens every man, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Those who have been enlightened have seen and been exposed to the truth of who Jesus is. They just don't believe it. They just haven't embraced it fully for what it is. They've been given the light of the gospel instructed, but there is no positive response. And the text says in verse 4, and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Tasted, not eaten. Okay. What's the heavenly gift? Salvation through faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 and verse 21. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. They have tasted of that. They've been exposed to people who are trusting. They know the gift is Jesus, and his death on the cross is a payment for their sin. They've even walked around and been associated and rubbed shoulders with believers in whom they have seen this gift manifested and enjoyed and experienced, but they have not received the gift, my understanding of it. I was reading about Oprah Winfrey. Did you know that her given name was Orpah? Book of Ruth? Yeah. But people couldn't pronounce it, so they said Oprah. It stuck. When she was a young girl, she used to memorize Bible verses and Bible verses and Bible verses because of her grandma. Enlightened. Tasted of the heavenly gift. Don't know. It's possible to be exposed to all of that and not embrace it. I could tell you about Nikita Khrushchev. Baptist missionary went to, the, to Russia, to Kremlin. He gave a piece of candy for every Bible verse that you memorized. And they started in the Gospel of Matthew. So this one little boy memorized a verse, came, got his candy. Memorized another verse, came, got his candy. Pretty soon, after a long time, the little boy had memorized the entire book of Matthew. Then he started in the Gospel of Mark. And then Luke. And then John. By the time he was done, Nikita Khrushchev could recite the entire Gospels, all four of them, from memory. Enlightened. Tasted. No fruit. It's possible. I think that's who he's talking about here. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Then it says in the text, they've made partakers. End of verse 4. Have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Again, association without possession. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. Members of the local church, they'd witnessed the Spirit's working, the Spirit's power, people getting saved. Probably even at that time, miraculous signs and wonders. You go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, and they had seen all this stuff taking place. 
no possession. Goes on, and have tasted of the good word of God. The good word of God was also tasted. It was not eaten. It was not ingested. It was not producing any fruit. They weren't growing because of it. Think about Herod. Remember when John the Baptist went to Herod and he says, hey, buddy, you know, you, you shouldn't really have your, your brother's wife. It's really not a good thing. Remember Paul? Paul was talking to Felix. And he says, you know these things. You understand this. Tasted, experienced, tasted the word of God. They had sat in the church, so to speak. They had rubbed shoulders with people. They would heard the gospel, grown up in Sunday school, whatever you want to say, but they had rejected the truth. And then he says, and the, the promise of the age to come, in verse 5, and have tasted the word, word of God, in verse 5, and the powers of the age to come, like Simon Magus. In Acts chapter 8, yeah, hey, I want some of that power. You know, demons are going to, I want some of that power. So he signed on for the power trip, you know. Benny Hinshaw signed up for it. Let's go. All smoke and mirrors. No, no real truth, no fire in his soul. They had seen miraculous powers of the kingdom of God, and it didn't draw them to the king from whom the power comes. Despite the privileges in their association with the proclamation of the people and the power of God, no, no, no faith in their hearts. And he says then, look at verse 6, and he says, and then have fallen away. In spite of all that privilege, then they fall away. So these are people who truly fall away. After all of that, and the only people who can truly fall away after all of that are people who have no true faith. In Christ. They fall away. So it describes a willful and deliberate and get this informed. Willful, deliberate and informed rejection. Of the gospel of God's grace. And it leaves the rejecter in a permanent and irrevocable place of opposition to God. There is no repentance left. That's a sad state. And the writer of Hebrews says, folks, would you listen to me? If you are stuck in your immaturity, I beg you, on behalf of Christ, be, well, he didn't say this, I'm saying this, be reconciled to God, which Paul said. Okay, I'm just quoting Paul. Because in your state of immaturity, the only thing that I can think of is either you have not truly possessed Christ, or you have possessed Christ, but you are not progressing because of your lack of obedience. So let's just get it done and make sure that you are in the family. Blatant spiritual immaturity caused him to write because he feared that uh, their privileges had caused them to be immune to the truth. They were in danger of slipping into irretrievable damnation. I told you, whether it was last week or week, beware of preachers who preach that people are going to hell and seem to enjoy it. No. He says, don't go there. And in so doing, in so taking the truths that we have been exposed to and not embracing the truth, what does the writer of Hebrews say? You crucify again to yourself the Lord. We're, we would be no different than those who joined the crowd before Pilate saying, crucify him, crucify him. And 
then he says, who crucified themselves to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame, mocking him and ridiculing him. We, we would be no different than those people if we truly do not believe and we had all this stuff and we rejected Christ fully and finally, we'd be out. Now, this morning, if you're concerned, have I fallen away and am I irretrievably damned? Your concern precludes the possibility. Just think about those words. If you're concerned about it at all, then it hasn't happened. Because if it had happened, you wouldn't be concerned. So as long as you're concerned, there's hope. Either you will progress on in your genuine faith, or you will repent and express genuine faith. Verses 7 and 8 are just a parable to illustrate what he has just said. The point proves the warning. The life-giving rain of God's grace is showered down on the soil of the worshiping community there. Okay. When the soil of the heart is fertile, then it produces faith, and the faith produces fruit. And there's a blessing from God. But if this water rain comes down and there is no faith, then there's no fruit, and there is, and this is the tragedy. Notice how he ends it in verse 8. They're cursed and burned. Cursed and burned. There are bonsai believers in the church of Jesus Christ. Nurtured and grown up on the faith. I tell you what, as a pastor, I fear this for my kids. They can be so inundated with the truth that they are inoculated against the truth. So we pray. And we pray, and I pray for those in this body, in every church, that the bonsai believers, they, they, they're either not in the faith, or they're in the faith, but they're just barely in the faith, and they're not progressing in the faith. And he says, here's the deal. Get saved, or get serious. Which is it for you? Get saved, or get serious? Because only as we're serious do we prove through our practice of righteousness that we possess righteousness. And if we don't get saved or get serious, then the consequence is cursed and burned. So here's my word. Don't trifle with Jesus. Trust him. Trust him for your salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith or your trust in what Jesus did on the cross as a payment for your sins and that alone, my prayer is that you would today cry out to God and say, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I've been in church, I'm here now, <laughs> you know, and I really have never surrendered my life to Christ and I accept what you did, Jesus, on the cross as a payment for my sin. I trust you with my life. I invite you to be my Lord and I leave this place surrendered to you. Now, Words are not magic. Somehow in your heart, express that to God. I'm a sinner. 
I know that Jesus died for me. I'm trusting in it, and I believe and surrender my life to you. Those of us who know Jesus, it's not a matter of trifling. It's a matter of let's don't pretend. Let's press on. Let's press on. And I don't know all of us, you know, I, I, all of us have some areas in which we need to press on a little harder than others, okay? So it's not like, you know, everybody should leave here saying, oh, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. Uh, but every one of us should at times ask ourselves, Ooh, I don't know, where'd that come from? Uh, maybe I need to get my heart right with God. And what a beautiful thing, because as we close the service, and we break the bread and the cup, guess what? These are elementary principles. Not where we stop. They're, they're stepping stones. But they're reminders of the faith that we say we possess. A body broken. Blood shed. So that we Sinners could be redeemed and rescued and delivered so that we could grow on, we could possess this righteousness of God and that we could practice this righteousness of God. That's what God calls us to. But it could just be a ritual. It could just be something we do it every week. You know, that's one thing when I was uh, thinking about coming to Creekside. I thought, well, yeah, they have communion every Sunday. It's kind of like the Catholics. Like the Episcopals. Like of other people. People that some of us probably wrongly have condemned. Yeah, it's just a ritual. Welcome to Creekside. Let's don't make this a ritual. It's a stepping stone, not a stopping place. But it's a necessary stepping stone. Like all of the foundational things are necessary stepping stones. Because they help us understand what it means to be in Christ and to move on from that. body broken so that we could be redeemed. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus, you're trusting in him as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to partake in these elements, to break this bread and, and take this cup. But I invite you to do a little soul searching before you just willy-nilly walk up here and, and take of these elements and get your heart right with God. If there's known sin in your life, confess it. If there's somebody you need to deal with and you can't do it here, then just don't take it until you deal with them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Paul's warning. Two of them, really. Warning in chapter 5 at the end and a warning in chapter 6, the beginning. I pray that as we take these elements, that you'd help us to search our hearts and get right with you, that there would be no bonsai believers leaving this place, but that we would all either be truly trusting in Jesus for the first time or those of us who are trusting in Jesus would be committing ourselves to press on to maturity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.